are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, teacher, mom, photographer, and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is September 5th, 2021, and this is episode 135 of Lighthearted. Our guest today is a good friend to the U.S. Lighthouse Society and to this podcast, Florida Lighthouse historian Josh Liller. Tomorrow is Labor Day, and I guess uh, summer's pretty much over. How uh, How's it been being back in the classroom, Michelle? It's been great being back in the classroom. Um, it's a little warm, but that's okay. The cooler <laughs> weather will start coming, and it'll be great. Yeah, it is so hot today. Uh, I'm in my little study here to do this recording, and I can't wait to get the air conditioner back on once we yes. finish recording. Yes. It's much too hot today. So uh, we do have a, a few more weeks of small tours by reservation of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse is right here on the New Hampshire seacoast. And we also have a lighthouse cruise coming up on September 18th, leaving Rye Harbor uh, here in New Hampshire again, uh, cruising near five lighthouses, including the extremely popular Nubble Light and Boone Island, which is way out in the water, a very interesting lighthouse. I'll be narrating that cruise. Are you going to be on board that one, Michelle? I think so. I haven't bought my ticket yet, but I'm, I'm planning on getting one, so... Well, I think we, since you're chairperson of the group, I think we might uh, be able to get you a complimentary ticket, but we'll see about that. But I, ho- I hope you'll be on board. Okay. <laughs> there is more about the tours and that cruise on the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse's website at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. I hope we'll see some of our listeners on board that cruise. I hope so as well. It's the 250th anniversary of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse this year, so it's a special year for us. Yes, it is. Uh, there's also information on our website about a new book I finished recently, The Light at Fort Point, which is the history of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. And I just finished reading that the other night. It was great, Jeremy. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Thank I you. I did. Plus, the official U.S. Lighthouse Society holiday ornament this year is Portsmouth Harbor Light, and that's going to be available soon. Yeah, and uh, you and I have seen the design of the ornament. It looks great. Really it's looking beautiful. forward to really looking forward to having the actual ornaments in hand, which uh, I'm, I'm hearing is going to be very soon, actually. Oh, uh, good. So, yeah, as I said, this is September 5th. Has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history? Yes, as a matter of fact, the second lower Cedar Point Lighthouse in Maryland was first lighted on September 5th, 1896. The original lighthouse in the location, which is in the middle of the Potomac River, was destroyed by fire on Christmas Day in 1893. The 1896 square screw pile structure lasted until 1951, when it was demolished and replaced by a small skeletal tower on the original foundation. Also, a big event in world history happened right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on September 5th, 1905. Yes, that's right. Uh, the Treaty of Portsmouth, signed that day, formally ended the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese and Russian delegations attending the peace talks in Portsmouth stayed at the Wentworth-by-the-Sea Hotel in Newcastle, which is just down the road from Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. President Theodore Roosevelt was instrumental in the negotiations and won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. There's an excellent exhibit on the Treaty of Portsmouth at the John Paul Jones House, which is run by the Portsmouth Historical Society. 
Yes, I've seen it. It's excellent. And anybody visiting Portsmouth should go to the John Paul Jones house and also the Discover Portsmouth Center just across the street there. So Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about today's guest, Josh Liller. Josh Liller has been the historian and collections manager for the Loxahatchee River Historical Society and the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Museum since 2014. Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse on Florida's East Coast went into service in 1860. Today, there are climbing tours of the tower, and the museum on the site features 5,000 years of local history. Josh also serves as historian for the Florida Lighthouse Association, and he gives presentations related to local history throughout the year. He's also the co-author of the revised edition of the book, 5,000 Years on the Loxahatchee, and he was the editor of the second edition of the book, The Florida Lighthouse Trail. Josh is also a regular contributor to the U.S. Lighthouse Society's journal, The Keeper's Log, and his column, Bright Ideas, appears on the Society's news blog. My first interview with Josh was recorded more than two years ago when I visited him at Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse in Florida, and it appeared in episode 16 of this podcast. We talked about the new edition of the Florida Lighthouse Trail book and the interview for this episode, and also about the latest news about Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Florida lighthouses in general. Let's listen to our conversation now. I am speaking this afternoon with my friend Josh Liller. Josh is the historian and collections manager for the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse in Florida, and he's also the editor of the book, The Florida Lighthouse Trail, which we're going to talk about today. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing all right down here. Other than I'm not uh, sweating up to the heat, it's good to be inside in the air conditioning. We got a little Florida heat uh, lately here, too, in the New Hampshire seacoast. It's uh, in the mid-80s and humid, but I guess that's nothing by Florida standards. Uh, for a Florida summer, that's downright cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to talk to you again. I I visited you down there uh just just a little over two years ago. It was this uh, I think it was May twenty nineteen when I was down there and it was uh fun touring your light station, a couple of the other uh Florida East Coast lights at that time. Although I have to say I need to get back because it was a little disappointing that day. There were thunderstorms in the area and my wife and I didn't actually get to climb the tower. So we need to get back and do that sometime. I thought you might have jinxed us by having this interview today because I was on my way back from lunch within the last hour and there was a, some dark clouds on the other side of the lighthouse. I'm like, is a rainstorm blow through here while we're just in time for the interview? But it ended Uh-oh. up being a little two-minute light shower that didn't really affect anything. Well, that's good. You're making me feel guilty, like I, <laughs> I, I bring you bad weather. But uh, it, was a, it was a great visit back then anyway. I was just a little sorry I didn't get to climb the tower, but that's a reason to get back there. So uh, let's let's talk about the, the book, which I have right here, The Florida Lighthouse Trail. It's a beautiful book, and it is a, a new edition that came out not, not that long ago. The original edition was written by uh, Tom Taylor, who I, I knew a bit. Uh, I sh- should mention for people who aren't aware, Tom was, a, a, I'd say, a pretty important historian of Florida lighthouses. Uh, he passed away uh, some years ago. Was it uh, maybe as much as uh, 10 years ago? Am I about right about that? Uh, 10, maybe even 15 at this point. Uh, oh, okay. Before I got involved in lighthouses. The original book was published 20 years ago. And yeah, so you're you're the editor of the new edition. Why did you uh, decide to do a new edition of the Florida Lighthouse Trail? Well, with the fact that it was almost 20 years old, it, a lot of the information was no longer accurate anymore. We had new research for one thing and new resources to do more research from, but 
just the things on the ground with the surviving lighthouses of which we have 30 here in Florida, a lot of that information had simply changed some of it very substantially. Cape St. George lighthouse in the Panhandle had fallen over right. in 2005 and been rebuilt on, on St. George Island. Cape San Blas had been literally picked up on a, with a crane and put on a truck and moved 12 miles. Several lighthouses were transferred under the uh, National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act, including Amelia Island and Crooked River. Anclote Key Lighthouse and Gasparilla Island Lighthouse have been completely restored. And this first edition came out months before, only a few months before 9-11, which immediately affected the access for the two lighthouses at Naval Station Mayport at Cape Canaveral and at Pensacola. And so that information had radically changed as well. And then mm-hmm. a few of the lighthouses, just, you know, the information was so much better. Uh, when I was doing the update, some of these chapters did not change substantially. Others, like J- the Jupiter chapter, I looked at it and just sort of ripped it up and threw it away and started from scratch because we've had so much better information. And within the Florida Lighthouse Association, we'd already been thinking about it. Uh, the Lake Hib Castleberry had been trying to push for a new addition and then our, our gift shop manager came to us and said, you know, before we order any more of these, we really ought to get a new edition because the information about our lighthouse is out of date. And then Pineapple Press, the original publisher, they were, they've done a lot of Florida and lighthouse books over the years. They were purchased by the larger publishing firm of Roman up in New York. And so they, in reviewing what they had acquired rights to, were interested in a new edition and they approached FLA. So all the all the pieces were in place to point in the same direction. Well, I having done uh, a New England Lighthouse Guide uh, and done four editions of it, I know how fast things change. So uh, those things you mentioned are some pretty pretty major changes. Lighthouses being moved and rebuilt and so forth. That's that's pretty major. What went into the creation of the new edition, and how long did it take to put it together? So the first challenge was that because it was almost 20 years old and the original editor was dead, there was no document that I could start editing to produce the new edition. I had my first experience trying to take existing work and scan it in OCR and turn it into an editable document, which had mixed results. And it did certain things beyond the basic text. It simply the OCR the free OCR services just couldn't handle very well. So there was a lot of rewriting anyway. Uh, so it didn't be, it wasn't a whole lot of help in that regard. The process was actually surprisingly fast over a, probably three months or so, uh, but very frantic at times on that. I yeah. had another book project ahead of that. There was a, a local book project for the historical society here covering all of our general history, which coincidentally was also a revised second edition. And that project ran a little longer than I expected. So as I'm doing proofreading and editing for that to go to print, I'm simultaneously also writing and rewriting chapters for the Florida Lighthouse Trail. Some of the information from the original edition was kept. Uh, Some of it was, you know, there were places where I would take the original chapter and cut out certain things that were just fluffy or incorrect or, or whatnot, and then insert new information that was more accurate or more detailed to bring things up to speed. So some of the, uh, only a few of the chapters ended up being completely brand new uh, for the people who in some cases had very lovely sort of introductions to their lighthouse. I kept and kept their credit uh, as co-author of the particular chapter and then fleshed out a lot uh, on my end. There was also 
some discussion within FLA, uh, especially with our president at the time, Chris Belcher, what new information needed to be added. You know, there's a lot of updating, obviously, uh, a new introduction, a new forward, uh, things like that. But what other content did we need to add that simply hadn't been considered at the time? So we added things like a list of all the Fresnel lenses that had been used in Florida. We needed to put the U.S. Lighthouse Society passport stamps that didn't exist mm-hmm. when the first edition came out of, because some of those are not necessarily accessible at the lighthouse. If it's, if it's not a lighthouse that's normally open to the public, they're usually somewhere else. So quite a, quite a bit of uh, sometimes frantic work there getting all done. Uh, I had a couple of proofreaders who, who read over things in general for just minor typo issues. Um, Neil Hurley, who has been a longtime Florida lighthouse historian for something like 30 years now, he proofread the entire book end to end after I'd done my draft and had a lot of good little tweaks here and there and additional information. For anything that's a, a lighthouse that has a existing lighthouse organization related to it, mm-hmm. they got to review their draft for additional corrections and additions to make sure that we could have the most accurate and correct information possible for this edition. Well, that's good. There's so much in it uh, besides being a lighthouse guide. There's uh, various uh, information at the end, all these chapters, including on the uh, Lighthouse Passport program that you mentioned. But what would you say, what are the most important things that make this book different from other guides to Florida lighthouses? A lot of lighthouse guides to Florida or anywhere else in general tend to be very photo heavy. Uh, They tend to be almost glorified coffee table type books. Mm -hmm. And the original edition was not. uh, The only illustrations were Paul Bradley's lovely sketch art of the different lighthouses past and present. And so we retained that for the new edition. And other than the color photos on the cover, that's it for showing what the lighthouses look like. We went to the same thing that the original one had tried to go to, which was content over over fluff, over uh, the images, because you can get that so many other places and you're going to go there and you're going to see them anyway. Right. So to give the information as a, a really useful reference guide that wouldn't otherwise be available for most other lighthouse guidebooks. Like you say, people can find uh, pretty photos all over the place. All they have to do is Google the name of the lighthouse and they're going to see a lot of pretty photos. Paul Bradley's illustrations uh, are beautiful, but they also are good representations of what these lighthouses look like, I think. Paul Bradley had been kind enough to will his lovely Florida Lighthouse drawings to the Florida Lighthouse Association. So we were free and clear to use them again for the book. And so they are the same illustrations as they were in the first edition. And what's particularly neat about them, besides being fairly unique artwork for Florida lighthouses, they include not just the 30 surviving lighthouses, but all of the previously existing lighthouses in which there are no photos, even historic ones to necessarily show what they look like. That's another thing I love about this book. Most guidebooks, including my own, (laughs) don't include lost lighthouses. Uh, Obviously people can't go see those lighthouses. So they're usually left out of guidebooks, but you include the the histories of those places and a description of the sites that are there now. And they're there are lighthouse aficionados, <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of people I know 
who like to seek out uh, places like that, or if there's a modern structure with an automatic light in the, the old lighthouse location, they like to see those. So you've also got a section on faux lighthouses, and there's certainly some very prominent faux lighthouses, that's F-A-U-X, lighthouses in Florida. And also you've got a section, the unmanned beacon lights of the Florida Keys. And, uh, you know, again, uh, a lot of lighthouse aficionados are going to seek those places out too. So it's nice that you included those those things. Yeah, and we also had the mentality that people, in some cases, who don't know that they're not real, quote-unquote, real lighthouses, they're going to maybe come looking for them and expecting them to be in there. Right. And so it's sort of dealing with the expectations of what your average reader might bring to the book. And also, in some cases, there are, for I think one or two of the Keys Beacon lights, they actually do have a passport stamp. And then for the faux lighthouses, the, uh, I think Mount Dora and maybe uh, one of the other ones down there, either Ferro Blanco or Boca Chita, there's a, a map of Florida lighthouses produced. I'm not sure, not by FLA, but it lists a couple of the faux lighthouses on there. So it's something people will want to know more about. We haven't mentioned there's also maps for each lighthouse, good maps of the the area, giving people a good idea of where the, the lighthouse is located. We had some discussion as to whether or not the driving directions and the maps were something that we needed to retain because in 2001, when the book came out, you know, we didn't all have GPS in our pockets. Right. But it was pointed out that still there are some people who don't have GPS or simply that some are in areas where the GPS signal isn't so great. And we decided to go ahead and, and retain it. Uh, also, there are lighthouses that just the GPS doesn't necessarily get you there by the best way. We have the problem here at Jupiter that Apple Maps keeps directing people to the wrong gate. And I have to credit the publisher on this. The maps, uh, in many cases, I'd say probably two-thirds of them had to be uh, substantially updated from the first edition for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm no cartographer or artist. So I got a pack of tracing paper and hand traced the old map and made some corrections on there. And from this crude artistry, the nice folks at Roman were able to turn them into nice maps that yeah. look professional and all fit the same style. Um, Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse, your your home base, I know from personal experience, is a, a great lighthouse to visit. You've got a, a nice museum. The tower is open for climbing, except when there's thunder <laughs> thunderstorms in the area, as I also know from experience. Well, there are a couple of others that really stand out for you that you think are especially visitor-friendly. So St. Augustine and Ponce Inlet are open pretty much every day. They're in outstanding condition. Uh, they're big lighthouses. They're near other things that are attractive to tourism. Ponce Inlet, honestly, is just one of my favorite lighthouses in general because not only is it a, one of the biggest brick towers, but they have the whole lighthouse station there. They have all three keepers' houses. They have the oil, an oil house and some of the outbuildings. They have a gift shop that is built in the design of a lighthouse keeper's dwelling from other stations. They have one of the best collections of Fresnel lenses on display yeah. in a special building. I mean, just fantastic operation there. So much to see. 
Pensacola's pretty nice. They've unfortunately had some struggles being open after they had a shooting at the, the Naval Station out there in Pensacola and then COVID because it's, it's on the, the base there. So it's uh, been a bit of a struggle for them to have access in the last year or two. But they have undergone quite an extensive phased restoration. That's a great success story. The Lighthouse for the book, um, it is accessible to visitors, but the one that stood out most when I was writing the book um, was Cape San Blas up in the Florida Panhandle. Most of the lighthouses were a four to five page chapter, and if they ran a little longer, I'd find somewhere I could kind of thin it down a little bit to, to have the same size. And I I reread that chapter probably three times and find like this is just there's too much bonkers, wild, almost unbelievable history with this lighthouse. <laughs> Uh, and the, the past incarnations of it that just it had to go with, I think it's seven pages in here. Interesting. I, I've got a feature, uh, Cape San Blas, on this uh, podcast, and I will. Uh, now you've made me even more so want to want to feature that. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the Florida Lighthouse Association. You've uh, referred to it as FLA a few times, and uh, I know that they certainly have played a role in this this book and you've got some material about them uh, at the end towards the end of the book but for people who don't know can you say a little bit about what the Florida Lighthouse Association is and what it does yeah the Florida Lighthouse Association was formed back in 1996 and the idea was that so many of the lighthouses were still really struggling at that time to get an organization together and get them restored and open to the public that, and it's such a big state that it really needed uh, organization that could help bring all these different people to help work together and share ideas. And it grew into an organization that is hosting three meetings a year at different lighthouses. In some cases, the Florida Lighthouse Association meeting is the only way to really climb some of these lighthouses that are just very restricted on when they have public access. There's oftentimes very interesting speakers. Uh, we had, uh, I think it's Joseph Smith is his name, the living history for Augustine Fresnel. He was at our Amelia Island meeting about a year and a half ago, and it was a fantastic performance. One of the best living, living history actors I think I've ever seen do any kind of performance like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So a big thing that FLA does is grants for all of the Florida lighthouses. There's a small grant program for just general things like exhibits, which unfortunately does not have a lot of funding. We're always searching to find some more donors to help on that. But the main source of grant funding comes from a license plate fund that we have. Uh, that has been a, a huge hit for us. We're up to something like in excess of $150,000 of grant funds each year just from that license plate. Wow. And those are only for repair, restoration, preservation type projects. Everything from repainting the tower to uh, replacing this broken glass to working on the roof so it doesn't leak. Uh, all the, the key things to keep the lighthouses in good shape and open to the public. And they've, for some of the smaller lighthouses, it's, it's crucial to have that kind of funding to help them because uh, they don't have a lot of funding sources. But even for some of the larger lighthouses like Jupiter or Ponce, if they have something where it's just a big project or they're a little short on funds or they have an emergency come up, it's still important for them as well. well that's great to hear that a license plate program sounds like a, 
a model for, for others in other states. So let's talk about your home base, Jupiter Lighthouse. Or Do you prefer to say Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse or just Jupiter Lighthouse? What's your preference? It officially is Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse. Uh, we kind of say it either way. I think people, as long as no one confuses with the Juniper Island in Vermont. <laughs> I don't think, yeah. <laughs> I've actually been on Juniper Island. I don't think that many uh, people can say that. But uh, that's And that's the oldest standing cast iron lighthouse in the country, by the way. 1846, if I remember correctly. The, of course, uh, you are the historian for Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse uh, and Museum. I understand uh, your site there, the museum and lighthouse, were closed only briefly at the start of the pandemic. Am I, am, am I right about that? That's correct. We closed in mid-March, like basically everything else did down here. And then we reopened to the public right after Memorial Day. I think we were open four days a week instead of what would normally be six days under normal circumstances. And we went back entirely with staff plus a group of former interns that were were available for the summer. And most of our volunteers are retirees, so they were particularly high risk. And even though most of the volunteer positions were outside, we wanted to try to play it especially safe and mm-hmm. kind of work out any any kinks with it. We had to juggle both the county having a mask mandate, but then also the uh, federal mask mandate that affected our property. And those two not necessarily always being in, in quite the sink at the same time. Yep. And as anybody who's operated retail or, or visitor services anywhere during this pandemic, dealing with the occasional, especially cranky person who wasn't happy about having to wear a mask, yeah. Uh, so it was a, certainly a challenge. Uh, I recently had a meeting with some of our fellow historical organizations down here in South Florida. And because they were indoors and had small staff, they were you know completely close to the public for a long period of time. And they, oh, we got all these backlog of back office projects and created all this virtual content. And mm-hmm. for us, it's no, we didn't, we didn't have the opportunity to do that with being a little short on staff and the, the challenging having to run it so much without the volunteers for a little while. They did start to come back in August. It's been a slow process depending on, you know, what they're comfortable about their health. Yeah. Uh, we did have some that just decided that it was the right time for them to permanently retire from volunteering. We've had one or two that have passed away, but I don't know that any of them were actually COVID related. We have, and once the vaccine started becoming available earlier this year, it, it rapidly increased the number of volunteers. We started getting back. Mm-hmm. It was uh, particularly tough last year because our we it, we shut down right before spring break and the peak of spring training, which would normally be our busiest time of the year. So we lost you know we lost our biggest month for income from admissions, and then just in general, as it was so slow to to come back into service during the summer with visitation. Probably by we were, were probably down more than half of our normal admission revenue by the end of the summer. Uh, this summer has been quite a contrast. We have been seeing record visitation for the summer this year. Uh, a lot of it is people locally take, taking day trips. People who were would love to go somewhere farther away and just don't find it feasible or or can't take their foreign vacation this year. Uh, but we are still seeing plenty of travel from people from around the country who finally getting the opportunity to get away and yeah. 
Oh, it's been such a, a challenge for uh, the lighthouse world and for the museum world. So it sounds like you've really done as, as well as you possibly could there. And uh, you're to be commended for, for keeping the, the place open. It's obviously easier at some lighthouses than others. Some of the smaller ones with really cramped quarters, it's been been very difficult. I visited you uh, quite a while before the pandemic, back in May 2019, and inter- interviewed you for this podcast. I believe something pretty big happened uh, later that year, later that summer. Can you tell us about that? Yes, and it ties into one of the unique aspects of our site. Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse is one of only three outstanding natural areas in the whole country. The other two are Peters Blancas, California, and Yakina Head, Oregon. And all three are property that is owned by the Bureau of Land Management and in the National Conservation Land System. And all three of them have the unique combination of a lighthouse and a significant natural area component. So our lighthouse here had a 122-acre reservation, which was much larger than would normally be the case. And through a series of fortunate events to our favor, uh, they were never able to unload what might be called surplus government property. And so in 2008, we successfully got legislation that would protect the property in perpetuity and get that ONA designation. But the Coast Guard at that time was still active on part of the site. And so it was up to them to decide when they no longer needed their portion of the site and would hand it over to the Bureau of Land Management. Our historical society is a nonprofit. We had a lease with the Coast Guard dating back to 1994, specifically to the lighthouse, and an agreement going all the way back to the 70s for a small museum on site in our former oil house. And... In 2013, the Coast Guard decided to start the process of transferring the housing and everything around it, including the lighthouse, over to the Bureau of Land Management. And as things are wont to do when you have a federal agency giving things to another federal agency, it can be a surprisingly slow process. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And finally, after six years, in uh, August of 2019, the final signature that they needed uh, was placed on the paperwork. And... The what we call the historic corridor with the lighthouse and 11 Coast Guard houses and some other outbuildings was transferred to the Bureau of Land Management. Our role with the Historical Society doesn't really change here on site. We're continuing to take care of the lighthouse primarily and do the visitor services for the history side of things, while the uh, Bureau of Land Management is focused on primarily on things like the natural area that makes up the majority of the site and the shoreline and so forth. Uh, we had a lovely little ceremony on Veterans Day in 2019. Uh, to officially mark the transfer. We had folks from the Coast Guard here. We had some local veterans we invited in and our volunteers and some uh, dignitaries from the Bureau of Land Management. Also, I I think some of the the plans uh, you had in mind for the buildings, some of the buildings at the light station changed since the last time we spoke. And what's the latest with that? So we have 11 Coast Guard houses here on the site, all single-family residences from 1960 or 1962, A couple of them were associated directly with the lighthouse and the light station, and the rest were for a Loran station, which where the transmitters were eight miles away, and the light station was later absorbed into the Loran station for its operation, since they're both navigational aids and sharing the same property. There was some consideration, since the houses are stock military designs, they're 
historic by age, but not really historically significant. So there was some consideration to demolishing some of them that simply weren't needed. But there was a lot of interest in uh, the public for something being done with them to repurpose them and not get rid of them. So in response to that public interest, the Bureau of Land Management put out a call for requests on how organizations that would step in and say, number one, we, are we appropriate for the site and the designating legislation? So people who wanted to run a bed and breakfast, which was really popular choice for how we should use the houses. Uh, that was just not compatible. But we had the Loxetchee River District, which has an environmental component and has done some programs on site. They uh, successfully submitted a, a plan to use two of the houses. And the Nature Conservancy, which is a, a national organization that handles some nature preserves around the country, including one nearby in Jupiter Island called Blowing Rocks, uh, they stepped in to take one of the other houses, which they are going to restore for some of their intern housing. And then some of the other houses were going to get preserved regardless. Uh, they're already in use by the Bureau of Land Management for things like a site office and mm -hmm. AmeriCorps intern housing. And then one of the houses, which is in a real nice spot down by the waterfront, uh, but there was some concern as to whether or not it was uh, potentially unsightly or if it had too many uh, issues for the roof that may not justify fixing it up. Uh, but with closer inspection and more consideration on the, the needs and uses of the site, we got a new roof put on it and we are working to get that fixed up to be using it for some offices and meeting space. The Coast Guard PX that used to be here on site, which had closed down right around the time you came by for your interview last time, that building also has some uh, roof issues, but again, not quite as bad as the initial appraisal thought they might be. So we are looking at how we can get that fixed up to use it as well. Some of the other things that on site too, that were not so much a plan to get rid of them, but which their status was still a little fuzzy back then the radio beacon building here on site we had one of the early radio beacons in the 1920s and the concrete building from 1928 is still there so it's had some remediation for things like lead paint and asbestos and it does need some further work done to it but it will become an exhibit uh, about the radio beacon system which was a national network with the lighthouse service an important part of our history the dock here we had been something we wanted to get fixed up and it's still uh, in, in pretty deteriorated shape from a lack of maintenance during the, the latter part of the Coast Guard days, but we did get official approval that it can get replaced. Uh, they're they're going to do some removal of the, the deteriorated planking, but leave the pilings and as soon as there are funds available, it will get rebuilt. It's it's not the original wood there, but it's in the same spot that the dock has been since 1883. And so it's a very important part of interpreting the lighthouse's history. And so we're happy to, to have that sort of formally approved. And one of the houses, the Coast Guard houses, um, it's been on the plans for a bit, but finally, within the next year, we'll finally get heavily remodeled with some restrooms, which have been long in demand from our visitors on site. Sure. And uh, another thing, kind of speaking of uh, planning for the future, uh, I understand there's going to be a major bridge replacement project happening fairly soon. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. How's that going to affect you? So the, we are next to U.S. Highway 1, which has a four-lane drawbridge from the 1950s, and that drawbridge needs to get replaced, which will create a lot of noise and, and dust from the demolition, as well as vibration issues from placing new pilings. And it's going to be about a four-year project, which should be real fun for local traffic. It'll be great once it's done, but our building is a historic naval housing building from 1942. And while it's a wooden building, uh, the proximity to the, the noise and, and dust and things is, would be a problem regardless. It's a 1942 naval housing building. It's a wood structure. So for the most part, it's fairly safe from vibration issues, except for the fact that it's on brick footers and has brick chimneys. Right. Uh, the contractors working on the bridge have given us great assurances and done a great number of monitoring tests, and we'll be doing them while the work is in progress to make sure that the chimneys or the building doesn't fall over from when they put the pilings in. But it's certainly something we're very concerned about and we'll need to for the safety and, and comfort and noise of everyone involved here will be having to move out of the building for a couple of years. Wow. Uh, once the work is done, we'll be moving back in, of course, but it will require relocating um, possibly to some temporary trailers as we work on those buildings on site. Um, if we can get the PX fixed up in time, which includes getting funding to do so, uh, that might be our, our new visitor center, uh, particularly for the gift shop and admissions. But it will it will certainly be a challenge while this is all uh, going on. And we thought we might have to be moving right around this time. But as big projects are want to do, it has hit some delays and that's been pushed back. And so it keeps being in a bit of state of flux. We know it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen soon. Yeah. But exactly when things start getting really in motion for the, the big part of the project remains a little uncertain. And that affects how... We have to do things here, so we're sort of ed on the edge of our seats about some of it. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Uh, it's, it's definitely a pain, but it sounds like something that absolutely needs to be done. So another thing I'd like to talk about a little bit is uh, the occasional column you do uh, for the U.S. Lighthouse Society news blog. The column is called Bright Ideas, and some of the columns, I think most of them actually, have been about important lighthouse builders and designers, engineers, people like Orlando Poe, Paul Peltz. Uh, I've learned a lot from reading them. Uh, you know, I knew a little bit about some of these people, but you've uncovered a, a lot of uh, interesting material on their work and on their lives. How have you been able to do the research for those columns? The whole Bright Ideas thing came about originally because I was cataloging some of our records here from the National Archives and I needed to tell who the heck these signatures were from these district engineers and inspectors. So I dug around online and found the annual reports of the Lighthouse Board and could find names to go correspond with the dates. And then I said, well, if I'm going to compile this information for our district, I might as well compile it along the way for all the other districts because I can't find this information um, in the in depth that I'm looking for. Uh, there was some information from the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website, but more extensive on the dates and things like that and how it was organized. So I put this together and I slapped it up on my homepage because I figured if I'm going to take the trouble to find this for my own edification, I might as well share it with everybody else so they can help them. And I've been happy to hear that it has been useful to some other researchers. And I started to get kind of, as I visited more lighthouses, curious about the architectural side of things. 
I have no background in architecture engineering, but I'm good at noticing patterns and things mm-hmm. and going, huh, that thing looks kind of like that other thing a little bit more than it should by just, you know, random happenstance. And so I started looking more into seeing first what our engineers, George Mead and William Reynolds had done. And then when I started learning more about Paul Pells from visiting other lighthouses, I'd, I'd gone to a couple of the Outer Banks ones and noticed how similar they were to St. Augustine. I wanted to find out more about him. And so I, I dug around in some online sources and newspapers to try to, to turn up more information on him and uh, contributed an article on that for Keeper's Log a few years back. And as I've just looked over some of these people trying to piece together the story of lighthouses being designed to a certain style and then how people that came along after the person who created a particular style, how they seem to, to tweak it and modify and improve it. And I just find that story of the evolution of the design, something that hasn't really been looked at a lot and just sort of a, a, a curious aspect. Uh, I liken it to in sports, you talk about coaching trees where you have a coach who has assistants who go on to become head coaches and they have assistants who and you perpetuate the cycle as the evolution of, of sports tactics. And you get a similar thing, it seems, with the architecture and the engineering. Uh, the U.S. Lighthouse Society's research catalog has been a big help having things digitized on there from architectural drawings to photos to the clip files from the annual reports. The National Archives has gotten a portion of their holdings of architectural drawings for lighthouses digitized. I think it's just their paper copies. Unfortunately, they have a lot more that's only on microfilm, which has not been digitized yet, but still, you know, it's information that wasn't readily accessible before from around the country uh, that's been very helpful. There is a large uh, volume encyclopedia called Columns Register, which is a listing of everyone who ever attended West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, and all of their official postings throughout their career and promotion dates and so forth. Um, so because of these early engineers were West Point graduates, being able to easily pull up and see who was in their class with them, where were they posted uh, before and after working on lighthouses. Uh, Some of them, because I have a a longstanding interest in the Civil War, some of them were familiar names already. And I'd just been fortunate in recent years that someone had written a biography of Orlando Poe, someone who written a biography of William Reynolds. Uh, I've also had, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say, some assistance from people here and there. I know we had a discussion, uh, you and I, on some of the iron lighthouses in New England and yeah. um, the, the engineering work there. And then Jack Graham, who I know is a frequent contributor to Keeper's Log, he sent me the Poe article by Terry Pepper from the Great Lakes that I wasn't otherwise aware of. So I could look over what Terry had said, uh, I think, about 15 years ago and compare it to what I had come across and sort of try to distill into the the latest information. These blog articles aren't really the final word in most cases on the subject. A lot of times the real final answer is going to be requiring some National Archives research. But what I'm hoping to do with many of them is to kind of provide a synthesis of what's been known in the past and any new information and that this will both be a, a help to future researchers who want to look more into the subject and give them a good starting point. But I also hope some of this inspires people who are reading it to go, wow, there is still a lot to learn 
about lighthouses and the people involved in lighthouses. There's new research to be done. There's new things that we to figure out that we don't already have all the answers. That's one of the things sure. I love about the, the subject of lighthouses in general and being a lighthouse historian. You know, there's so much ink that's been spilt on George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and the Battle of Gettysburg and D-Day. You know, there's not a lot of new ground to mine there. But with lighthouses, there's just so much yet to be discovered and yet questions yet to be answered uh, that, that really makes it a fun topic to research. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, I think you'd agree. And I've been doing lighthouse stuff for like 35 years, and I feel like I've just scratched the surface. And, uh, you know, the more I, more I know, the more I realize I don't know. But you are uh, supplying important pieces to the puzzle. You know, it's all a big puzzle, and your uh, pieces uh, in many ways are, are contributing a lot to that. So when you've uh, researched these lighthouse engineers and builders, is there anything especially interesting or surprising you've run into? Some of the people involved have been really fascinating characters. There was George Derby, who was a lighthouse designer on the Gulf in Gulf Coast in the late 1850s, and he'd had a colorful career prior to that out in California, where he was being a, a journalist and writing under pseudonyms and writing some very colorful contributions to local newspapers and was a pretty good engineer and then died young and apparently had had some kind of um, brain tumor or something. And his very colorful character may have his, his behavior and his, his attitude and ideas and, and everything might've been influenced by that brain tumor. And he's one of the few people uh, from that time period who actually, we have a lot of surviving writing that wasn't simply letters to a, a family member. If it, it, He's got some obscure books. That's a little tricky to track down. They, they are out there kind of collecting his California writings. Mm-hmm. And then uh, someone like Orlando Poe, whose name was faintly familiar to me from the Civil War, but reading about his time in the Civil War and just how important of an engineer he was under Sherman, who was a much more famous name, but uh, Poe's engineering was an important part of Sherman's operations. And then just how important he was to the Great Lakes. I mean, aside from serving on the Lighthouse Board and serving in the Civil War, Orlando Poe's basically his entire engineering career, which was most of his adult life, took place on the Great Lakes, not just the lighthouses, uh, but the Poe locks and uh, other plans for navigational improvements on the lakes. If you love Great Lakes navigation, the, the guy's got to be one of your biggest heroes. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's unfortunate that people like Poe or uh, William Franklin, uh, another guy who's well known for his Civil War exploits a bit more than his lighthouse ones, but whose lighthouse exploits were pretty important, they, during the war, wrote frequently and openly and in great detail to their spouses who were back home while they were out on campaign. And then unfortunately, when they were, they were had the, the comfort of, working as lighthouse engineers with, you know, being able to go home to a warm bed every night and their spouse being there, but they didn't leave that same written record about their lighthouse duties. So it's so much of the the picture and an insight into the character of them as a person, yet uh, from, from our lighthouse buffs, it, it's tantalizingly absent on the details that we're really excited about. Uh, just a, a basic question about all all that these uh, these builders. Why should we remember them? What's uh, what's important about uh, that aspect of lighthouse history? 
Uh, for one thing, just I think giving credit where credit is due, uh, that we want to, as part of telling the story of a lighthouse, we want to be able to credit the keepers for their service. We want to create credit the designers who designed it. Um, I mean, it, it's still something that's still standing a century or more later really is, a, is quite an accomplishment and they deserve the recognition, both just for you know, historical record, but in many cases, you know, being commended for having left such a, a fine building still standing. And like I said earlier, the, the fact that it's a, a underlooked story because we know so little about it, we don't necessarily know what more we might learn about it by learning about it. There may be details and, and additional stories that are kind of untapped out there. And to give that better understanding of how Lighthouse has changed over time and why by learning about the people who changed them. Do you have a favorite lighthouse designer, engineer, or builder? Mm. Or more, or a couple, maybe? I'm, I, I'd say I'm partial to William Reynolds. To, to step in and, to, you know, George Meade was not a general when, he, when William Reynolds succeeded him in several district projects. But still to have someone who was a pretty well-regarded engineer and to come in and in many cases say, well, George, George's design was pretty good, but I have some ideas on how we can make it better, which he was correct in those improvements. Um, I think that requires some admirable boldness. Yeah. And William Reynolds also deserves some credit for handling the engineering duties of three different districts at the same time, the fourth, fifth, and seventh all at once, which could not have been easy, easy right. juggling act, especially since you're dealing with the, the reef lights in Florida and the big brick towers on the Jersey coast and the, the early screw pile cottages in the Chesapeake. Um, and then some of the other brick towers out on the Delmarva Peninsula, you've got a lot of, not just a lot of ground, but a lot of different styles of project that you're trying to manage. And that's quite a, quite a feat in and of itself. Plus he got to, uh, when he left lighthouse work, got to go out to uh, Yellowstone, which must have been a, a trip of a lifetime back then. Yeah. So let's uh, shift gears again. And uh, let me ask you, is there any big uh, Florida lighthouse news uh, happening now or in the, the works that's, that's going on? A couple small but significant things, I suppose. Um, the Florida Lighthouse Association meetings are happening in person again. Uh, our next one is in October up at Cape San Blas in the Panhandle. Hoping to get to Cedar Key next year that's a, a tricky one because it's an offshore lighthouse uh but and the one we rarely get to because of the location but it's a unique little cottage style lighthouse sand key lighthouse which is one of the reef lights nearest to key west uh went through the very long uh national historic lighthouse preservation process yeah it did go through about a two and a half year long auction through general services administration and did finally get concluded and uh, purchased. I don't know if we know who the purchaser is yet, but it has passed into private hands and hopefully right. it will be someone who will be able to handle the very large task of restoring it. But it's, we, we shall see. The other four reef lights from Cary's Fort Alligator, Sombrero and American Shoals uh, are all still in the NHLPA process being reviewed. Um, we don't know when it'll conclude. Uh, I know the folks at the Florida Keys Reef Lights Foundation have 
put in for ownership of all of them, uh, but they had also put in for sand key ownership. We're really, you know, we're all kind of anxious here in the Florida lighthouse community to see those lighthouses finally come into hands that will preserve them and restore them. They, they'll be very large challenges, but uh, they're very historic lighthouses and a very beautiful part of the ocean. So we're, we're hopeful, hopeful that they'll all work out good for us in that regard. St. Augustine Lighthouse uh, in recent years has restored a Coast Guard building they have on site that was from their housing for their lookouts and local beach patrol during World War II. And a lot of lighthouses here in Florida and elsewhere had these structures or, or similar small barracks like them at their light station, but very, very few of them have survived to present day. So it's great that it was still there, got restored, and I understand has a Coast Guard exhibit in it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier that Pensacola is still kind of struggling with their access limitations from the pandemic. Um, the base commander is fortunately sympathetic to the lighthouse. Uh, so they certainly are trying to get some changes on site that will allow them to get people to start visiting regularly again. Uh, I know they're across the street from the national aviation, national Naval aviation museum. So they're not the only ones anxious to get base access restored. Uh, so we're, we're hopeful to some good news in the future, near future for that regard, but we're still a little bit of a wait and see. Let me ask you, do you have any other lighthouse related book projects in the works? <laughs> um, so writing is a, a Interesting challenge for me here because we're not just the lighthouse, we're also the local historical society. In the last year, I've contributed some articles to a, another local historical society about some of the uh, nature preserves in the area. I did a series on, on local history topics for another local magazine. Uh, we have a quarterly e-newsletter that we send out that's available on our website that you can check out that I do the bulk of the writing for it. Um, on Lighthouse and a variety of other local topics. So a lot of writing all on, on that field. I do have a manuscript that I'd say is about 90, 95% complete on our Lighthouse Keepers. We may have talked about this a little bit two years ago, but we had close to 200 civilian and military Lighthouse Keepers here between 1860 and 1987. And I've done a lot of research through everything from their personnel files from National Archives to newspaper research uh, to being able to contact some of our surviving Coast Guard keepers or their families to get their stories told. And I just need to finish going through some of my sources and getting it into the manuscript. And then uh, I'm sure there'll be quite a lot of editing and proofreading to, to get it all distilled into a, a final form and then find out whether or not Pineapple Press or another publisher is willing to publish it, or if we may just publish it through the Historical Society here somehow. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's that's been a project that started several several years ago, and then when I uh, worked on the Florida Lighthouse Trail book and the other book, Five Thousand Years in Loxahatchee, they kind of got laid aside, and then a variety of factors have have kind of delayed me in getting back to work on them. So I want to get that finished up before the, hopefully before the end of the year, at least for the main writing portion. And yeah. then I need to uh, start working at least in the preliminary stages on assembling all the research that's been done here um, and collected over the years. Some of it by me, some of it by my predecessors 
but to write uh, the full-length book on our lighthouse and all the military stations associated mm. with our lighthouse. And I've also been contacted uh, last year by Arcadia Press, who wants to do an Images of America book about Jupiter Lighthouse, which I just need to finalize the paperwork for them and start getting photos together. But it's uh, I, if anyone from Arcadia is listening, I apologize. This huh. is we put off. But yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I just signed the papers for an Arcadia Press book uh, like last week, and I had been uh, kept, uh, you know, delaying it, but finally uh, got that done. So, Lighthouses of New Hampshire will be coming uh, in a couple of years, but uh, you'll have a, a good experience with that, I'm sure. You know what I like about basically everything you do, lighthouse related, and I'm sure your your other work too. It's you're not just recycling historical material. You're you're always digging. You're always researching. You're always looking for new things and fleshing out things uh, more and more. So, uh, you know that's uh, much appreciated by me and other people who are really into the subject. I know, Josh. I want to congratulate you on the new uh, edition of the Florida Lighthouse Trail. It's a beautiful book. Anybody uh, interested in Florida lighthouses or coming to visit Florida lighthouses should get it. And uh, congratulations on the new deal with Arcadia and everything else you're working on. Look forward to, to seeing more of your, your work. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And I got to get back down there and actually get to climb the tower the next time I'm down there. So thank you, Josh. Thank you. Uh, happy to be on the show again. Look forward to seeing you again in person when you're able to make it down this way. Uh, maybe try to, if you can, try to time it for uh, a Florida Lighthouse Association meeting maybe and meet some of the other nice folks in that organization too. Josh Liller's books, Florida Lighthouse Trail and 5,000 Years on the Loxahatchee, are available in the gift shop at Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and also on Amazon. Proceeds from the Lighthouse Trail book go to the Florida Lighthouse Association, and the proceeds from the local history book go to the Loxahatchee River Historical Society. It's always a pleasure to speak with Josh, who's one of the country's leading lighthouse historians. I really have a, a lot of respect for the work he does. As always, many thanks to the staff, members, and volunteers of the U.S. Lighthouse Society around the world. To learn more about the tours, the passport program, and all the other things the Society offers, check out uslhs.org. The historian David McCullough once said, and I quote, History is a guide to navigation in perilous times. History is who we are and why we are the way we are, end quote. Thank you for co-hosting again, Michelle. You're welcome, Jeremy. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine